It's just that fascinating movie. I like to go get a piece of pie and talk about it. It's sort of a little tradition I have. Do you like to get pie after you see a good movie? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to A Piece of Pie, the Queer Film Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Rowe, and I'm here with my friend and contributor, Max. This week, we have two very special guests. We have Drew and Glenn from the Gayest Episode Ever podcast. Hello, boys. Hello, I'm Glenn. So that's the Glenn voice you're hearing. And I'm the one who's not Glenn. That's me. Hello. Hey there. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your podcast. Like I said, it's the Gayest Episode Ever. Um, it actually started out very similarly to how you described the origins of your podcast uh, when you were recording with us just moments ago, where um, Glenn and I talk about sitcoms a lot, and we're, we are roommates, and we were having these conversations anyway, and I had a podcast that was not good, and I wanted a podcast that was good, <laughs> and um, I decided that the conversations that Glenn and I were having anyway should be on podcast, and then after much convincing, Glenn consented under very specific rules that I have abided by this whole time. And yeah, I'll never listen to an episode. Yeah. Which is fair. I mean, he doesn't have to, I mean, it would, it would, it would help the numbers if he did, I suppose, but um, he doesn't have to listen to his own voice if he doesn't want to. Yeah. And then the only, the only hiccup was I would often say, Oh, you, you should cut that because I'm very, I try to be very careful about not commenting on like things that are currently on TV or Hollywood inside gossip. Uh, and, in the beginning, Drew thought that was a funny gag of me saying, oh, you're going to cut that, though. No, I mean, we've talked about this. <laughs> I cut all the ones that needed to be cut and the ones that were clearly made as when you were clearly making a joke. It was your joke, not me. I don't want to fight about this on someone else's podcast. <laughs> it's a podcast about gay episodes of classic sitcoms. Let's just, let's just say that right now, okay? Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to accidentally start a fight. I apologize. No, um, uh, no they're, it's, they're, in good, they're in good company now, Brian. Uh, so the reason you are on our <laughs> podcast and guesting, and thank you so much for coming on, is we are talking about As Good As It Gets, the 1997 Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt film. Uh, we were on your podcast talking about her sitcom, Mad About You, and a gay-focused episode about Mad About You. Um, and now we're talking about Helen Hunt's Oscar-winning role, As Good As It Gets. Max, do you want to like, go over the plot a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, Brian and I have been talking about doing this one for a while because we both talked about having fond memories for it, even though that we know that it'd be hard to revisit, even though that we know that it hasn't aged well. Mm -hmm. Visiting this time around, you know, reading this plot doesn't, I think, do a lot of justice to what is actually contained in this film. But it really centers around uh, this romance novelist, Melvin Udall. Uh, it's made very clear near the beginning of the film that he has OCD as well as many other mental health issues that he actively sees many doctors for. Uh, we see a lot of his routine. We see him, uh, you know, washing his hands. We see him avoiding people, avoiding stepping on cracks until we finally find out the end of his routine is eating breakfast uh, at the same table in the same restaurants uh, every single day. Uh, where he is obsessed with his waitress, Carol Connolly, our Helen Hunt. Melvin Udall, obviously, is played by Jack Nicholson, both of our Oscar winners for 1997. Um, Melvin lives in the same building as the gay artist, Simon Bishop. Uh, that is a specific term that Wikipedia is using here, gay artist, um, who uh, ultimately is assaulted and nearly killed during a robbery. Um, his agent uh, tries to get Melvin to care for his dog, Verdell, uh, while he's hospitalized. And that brings these two characters together. Uh, a lot of dog montages, lots of cutesy shots to the camera. 
Um, but ultimately, Melvin is trying to get closer to Carol as he's also getting closer to Simon. Um, what I haven't explained is that uh, he's also the world's biggest asshole. Um, he is racist. He is homophobic. He is sexist. And he lets all of this escape at all times during this movie. Ultimately, uh, these three characters are thrown together in a convertible and go on a road trip, kind of a classic road trip movie. Um, where it really starts to get a bit more into its romantic comedy bona fides, uh, sometimes a little bit out of nowhere. Um, but Melvin and Carol get closer and then push apart. Melvin can't help himself with the things that he says. Carol and Simon get closer. And in 1997, we have our second uh, most famous uh, drawing, a uh, famous actress while nude scene. Uh, and by the end, uh, things wrap up. Um, we have a happier ending than we might expect with a story that has this much... Um, sharp edges to it um, but ultimately Melvin and Carol get together and uh, and Melvin has an ongoing relationship with Simon as a friend and our bigot is uh, slightly redeemed or at least to a more acceptable level um, for you know I guess it would be a more traditional Hollywood style ending. Um, boys uh, when was the last time or the first time that you had watched this movie? A first time was in theaters, I believe. Uh, but I was, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. So that's what teenagers did on the weekend to see the the big movies in theaters. And I can't remember the last time I saw it, but I recently brought it up in a trip to Palm Springs. We're playing movie game where you just try and people try and guess what random movie you're thinking of based on questions they ask. And it took my friends a long time to guess as good as it gets. Like they even got so far as like, gay artist beating <laughs> and um, even Helen Hunt. And like, it, it still just escaped them for a long time. Oh. And these are like oh. movie people. And I was very frustrated. And I was trying to remember, like, I swear this was a big movie that lots of people remember. Yeah. Um, it was a huge hit. Yeah. A gigantic financial success. And won tons yeah. of tons of awards. So I, I feel vindicated now being on a podcast talking about as good as it gets. I watched this with my parents on VHS. They both fell asleep and I was probably 15 when I watched it. It was not long after it came out, probably after it won Best Picture. Did it win, did it win Best Picture? No. No, Titanic that was the year of Titanic. Titanic won Best Picture. Oh, okay. um, it, probably after that Oscar season came and went. And I feel like at this point in time, my gauge of whether I like a movie or not wasn't really fully formed. So my reaction to it was like, this is a movie that I'm told it's good. But it sort of left me feeling hollow. And I was just like, okay, I have no real reaction to this. I don't really respond to it. And 20 something years later, I still don't. <laughs> yeah. I actually saw it in the theater as well. Um, I remember I worked at a movie theater and I saw it. Uh, I saw it for free, like, because I would see everything. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember seeing it like opening weekend with like a packed house. Like, it was a popular movie. Um, and Helen Hunt was a popular actress <laughs> for some reason. Or so they told us. Uh, so they told us. Well, they kept putting her in movies, so why not? Um, but yes, I've been wanting to do this movie for, for a long time. So I'm, I'm glad we finally got around to it. Uh, I, because, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, this is also one of the movies where I, I, I distinctly remember like all the Oscar clips. Mm -hmm. yeah. Also, mm -hmm. yeah 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 i also remember random movie trivia for it like i remember greg kinnear talking about how awkward it was to do his like jack nicholson impersonation on set and i remember that there were two different dogs because you needed a cute dog for the close-ups and a smart dog for all the tricks so <laughs> i feel like this movie does have like a lasting impression on me 
I mean, it came out in a very heavy movie year. You know, I think a lot of people point to 1999 as being one of the best years for movies. But 97 was, I mean, this is the year of Titanic and As Good As It Gets and Goodwill Hunting and uh, Boogie Nights and L.A. Confidential and Full Monty. Like, there's a lot of popular movies really jammed into this year. And, you know, looking back on some of the trivia for this one, I was shocked with how much money that it ultimately made. And the fact that it's Jack Nicholson's second most successful film after Batman, of all things. That is crazy. So for a movie, again, with this many sharp edges, for it to be this popular, revisiting it uh, uh, for so long was almost a little bit bewildering. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, Glenn, came to it uh, being that I was 12 years old and I was... Uh, becoming a movie fanatic, I was realizing that I was this little homo and stealing my mother's entertainment weekly magazines. And the Oscars uh, coverage was really breathless uh, around this time because it was such a competitive year and, and movies were making so much money too. Um, but again, it seems like such a weird, strange film to be so popular and to be so fetid uh, at the end of the day um, and to rewatch it in 2021. Oof. Which I think weird, weirder is that like this movie spawned a lot of clones of like, quote unquote lovable assholes being the center of the movie (laughs) and then you think about how five easy pieces also with jack nicholson spawned a bunch of clones of like weird in their head loners just sort of like going along and like oh they're crazy family it's just an, an odd parallel that i hadn't thought of until this second jack nicholson is somehow representing the the perception of male masculinity and how toxic it is yeah (laughs) right i i was dreading watching this movie because i knew it was gonna be a lot to deal with i had the weird experience of um i do have a lot of problems with it which we'll talk about but um i was prepared to have a lot of problems with the jack nicholson character and i actually think he turned out better than i thought he would and better than i remember most of my problems are with the other two characters, which was a mm-hmm. major surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's very clear that 100% this movie would not work without Jack Nicholson. His performance, the stardom, you know, even still at this time, he's probably one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so much that could be interchangeable, but the movie rests on his shoulders. And it's very clear that audiences showed up and wanted to see him. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that he kind of takes this traditional kind of like, it's not a hero's journey, but it's a softening uh, of, but you know, Rereading up on some of the info of this movie, I was I was surprised, but maybe not that surprised that this went through many permeations of a script before it ending up in all of these creators' hands, um, but that it was ultimately a much darker script, that it was not a romantic comedy, that it was much more of a drama. And I think that you can see that poking through the movie quite often, mm-hmm. uh, where this you know is not getting a more sentimental treatment, where more original. But once James L. Brooks got on hand and rewrote the script, you know, and there's pros and cons for that. There are a lot of pros, I think, in, in his writing ability, and especially coming from the creator of Terms of Endearment mm-hmm. and uh, Broadcast News, two stone-cold masterpieces that you know get the comedy-drama equation right. And this one wants to do that again, but I think how successful it is is up in the air now in 2021, but in 1997, people treated this as a huge return to form for him. I mean, I, I will say, like, and I feel guilty saying, but like, the movie still works on me. Like, the parts where, like, the score kicks in and everyone gets their Oscar moment and has their little speech, I still, you know, I, I feel bad in the moments they want you to feel bad for the characters, and I still root for certain character moments, and I still get mad when 
Jack Nicholson's character steps in it and just says the absolute wrong thing. And I, I do remember some of the trivia about the script going through changes and how originally like the movie was supposed to end with that first terrible kiss uh, on the street outside the bakery. And it was just was like, oh, it, you, they built up to this moment where they kiss. And you know what? You built this all up in your head. You're not really a great match. And they weren't supposed to really get together at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. those, and they added that second better kiss just to make it a happier ending. Interesting. Yeah, um, I didn't know until today that it was written by someone else and then rewritten by um, uh, James L. Brooks. Um, but I feel like I have a much better sense for the kind of writer he is and um, also the kind of writer he is when he's not doing his masterpiece material, which I would not say mm-hmm. this is a masterpiece. Um, I listened to the Talking Simpsons podcast and um, they are redoing the second season of the show right now and um, of the second season of The Simpsons. And there's a few episodes where James L. Brooks, who was the producer on that show, um, went back in and redid it and sometimes would redo it in a schmaltzy way Um Emotional to be like very generous, schmaltzy to be um, like kind of snarky about it. And um, it doesn't work. And I feel like um, that version of James L. Brooks trying to like put a happy face on something that's not happy um, is what I took away from this version of it. I think it helps that it's still funny. I mean, like, obviously our direct racism and our homophobia is not funny. And, you know... uh, and I think had the opposite effect maybe in 97 is that this was such a big hit. You got to imagine that there were people who are agreeing with his character and actually liking his perspective and what we know about American audiences at this point. So, but I mean, there are lines and, and the classic type of way and joke structures that these are, that, that this is built, that it's, that it's hard still not to appreciate moments and jokes like fucking HMO bastards, pieces of shit. It's okay. I actually think that's their technical name. You know, like it's sitcomy. It's James L. Brooks, but mm-hmm. it works. And Glenn, like you were saying, like this movie moves, even if this if this material maybe not doesn't deserve it or is a little bit more prickly, it moves like a great movie. It sounds and seems like one. And it takes its moments like that too. I mean it definitely takes its moments. Like I feel like I was saying this to you earlier, but it's long. It's a long movie. And I think half of that time is Helen Hunt delivering her lines in her head before she actually says them. <laughs> like, I think she always just gives the character she's opposite a moment to sweat before she says the withering thing she's going to say. And she does it mad about you, too. Like, there's always that look. There's always that pause that she uses because she's building up the thing that's going to be so clever that she says uh, but after like two and a half hours, it's like, okay, I get it. I, I, I am, I am spoiled, but by, by the fact that we talk about sitcoms most of the time, but, um, I like paused the movie and figured like, this is wrapping up soon and found that I was not even halfway done yet. And I was like, we've already gotten through all the things I remember about this movie. What the fuck else is there? And then I remember there's, <laughs> there's a road trip. They take a road trip together. I'm like, oh yes, all of this. Um, it is, it, um, I guess it does move along. It was just, um, it, it was just a surprising experience to like uh, feel how much it lingers. It is, a, it is a movie that lingers. I think you could kindly call it episodic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, the reason I always wanted to have, or I've, the reason I've wanted to discuss this movie on the podcast is because of the Greg Kinnear uh, Simon character and its treatment of him and how it's and even in 97 um i was 17 years old in 97 this felt like 
the first time, like I had very recently come out to myself, uh, but not to anybody else, but it felt like, oh, okay, this is what my life is going to look like. <laughs> and it was this like pity sort of like, um, uh, angles to it for me. And the, one of the things about the movie that really doesn't age well is, and I mentioned this, in, uh, talking about Mad About You, it treats his sexuality like something that happens to the straight people. Yes. And and not only that, Brian, is rewatching this for the first time in maybe, I got to think, almost a decade, um, and as, as many warm feelings that I carry along with me, it treats Simon's assault as something he deserves, too. It, it really it really seems to make that, like, well, he invited them into his place. He knew they were hustlers. This is what you're going to get when you're gay. But did and he I remember know? a lot of that. I don't, I don't, I, it's not clear if he knew that guy was a hustler, if he was just like trade, which yeah, is, which I don't is, even think yeah. he knew it was trade. I think that was a specific choice by the movie to have his, the person who found this model, Skeet Altrich or whatever. Like, I think it was, <laughs> they, I think they separated it so that specifically to avoid that guilt to say like, oh, he's an innocent gay man. Mm-hmm. He didn't know. Oh, yeah, and he doesn't he have, a hustler. they, they, they. Definitely make it seem like he's been coming by for a while because like he starts the painting and then like when it when he shows up and uh, Jimmy Kennedy is there, the painting's like almost done. Yeah. And like he's wearing a different outfit or something. So like he spent some time there. And I think what happened was like it, I actually was thinking a lot about this when I was watching it this time as I was like, oh, so Skeet Aldrich kept coming over and like told Jimmy Kennedy, like, oh, he has all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then like, let's go rob him. And then he shows up, he gets home early and Jamie Kennedy is holding the thing and he's the one that punches him. But like Skeet Aldrich, like for a moment is like, try doesn't like, that's like not what he's there for. They're just trying to rob him. Mm-hmm. And, Skeet, and then the other guy starts beating him. I think they not that movie, I'm saying he's a sympathetic right. character. But I think the movie <laughs> I think what I'm saying is the movie bends over backwards to make it that Greg Kinnear is innocent of gay sin in these ways. Like because he doesn't try <laughs> he doesn't try and sleep with the model. He doesn't know the model is trade. So yeah, he's gay, but he's somewhat uh, blameless. The, well, okay. So I mean, so, uh, so what I think it is is like he has no sexual energy. He does not try to sleep with Skeet Ulrich. So they're making him as sympathetic as they can possibly be to the predominantly straight audience. But by the fact that these are, they're at least hustlers, if not um, like explicitly gay characters. Um, they are. The implication is that the gay lifestyle is inherently gay and just being mm-hmm. gay, you're associated with this kind of thing. And he does bring it on himself just by being gay, even if he does not exert any sort of sexual motive whatsoever. Sorry. No, that Drew, I was just about to, that's my point. Uh, I feel in my head too, is it's, it's the tone of the movie. It fits into that after school special. It fits into how gays were still being represented in 97 on screen, that it was just like, we can be sympathetic, but you're not exactly the hero here. You're creating your own problems still. Like it's not repeating and agreeing with, with Melvin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hundred percent, but it's still, you know, it's still got a little of this Philadelphia flavor. And as Brian well knows, like Philadelphia is one of my least favorite fucking movies of all time, because yeah. like, I can't stand this whole stretch in the nineties where the tolerance, you know, was really just for, Ah, it, 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 that's more offensive to me than an offensive stereotype after a while. I but, think, I, you know, but, but Simon starts the movie like in really nice, like, you know, eyeshadow and it's very pretty. And like, I think I had a crush on Greg it's very when I was pretty. 12. Yeah. But I think the biggest judgment the movie is making is when I think it's Melvin points out, like, where are all your queer party friends now saying that 
gay men. It's like it's all fun and games until something bad happens, and all your gay friends are fair weather friends, and everything you've built up in life can be taken away so easily because your life isn't serious. You don't have health insurance. Uh, this beautiful apartment is gone because you're not a responsible person. What you need mm-hmm. is a straight person to be your friend, and that'll put you on the right path, which is essentially what it does. I think the term that's applicable here is angel gay, and it's something that comes up a lot in sitcoms, <laughs> um, but it actually wasn't happening in 1987 in sitcoms anymore, and I think this is a result of James L. Brooks maybe not being completely with the times. Um, it happened in the early 90s, never really happened in the 80s, where uh, at the time of AIDS, in order to make a, char- a gay character, Philadelphia is another good example of this, in order to make a gay character sympathetic, he has to be perfect and without real sin and he can't even like you can't picture he can't be like a lusty sexual animal he has to be like denuded of all sexual energy so straight people can be uncomfortable with this person being on on screen and that is what Greg Kinnear is in this except on sitcoms they usually don't get gay bashed and horribly disfigured and that's what happens even more because I think James L. Brooks I think this character has no real purpose in this movie other than to balance out the heinous um like bigotry of Jack Nicholson's character. And that might've been a calculated thing, but um, I feel like James L. Brooks didn't feel comfortable just having an angel gay that would win over people's sympathies and balance out the equation of Jack Nicholson being an asshole. He also had to beat the shit out of Greg Kinnear. So people would, who even might not like gay people have to feel kind of bad for him because he had this Mm -hmm. like physical trauma and it's really fucking offensive and I hate it. Sorry. No, exactly. And that's you're you've tapped into exactly like the stuff that fascinates me about this movie. Um and that era is that that was uh and because even then it's like we're casting we're casting Greg Kinnear mm-hmm. and he's only gay because he's bleached his hair and the movie's telling you he's gay. Mm-hmm. He does nothing he doesn't clock as gay at all, other than like the movie's telling you. Do you guys think that Cuba Gooding's character is also supposed to be queer? Yeah. Yes. It, it is. I think it's interesting that even happens. He's got the gold earring. He code switches. Like when he heads back to the party, he puts on his gay demeanor uh, and minces back yeah. into the to the lively section of the apartment. Or do they have any sort of relationship, or is it just a business relationship? Just business. So it is interesting to me that I have to even ask that question and be like, I guess there's something here, but it's never explicit. It is something that is coded in a way that I think a non-gay audience would not necessarily perceive. Like, a white person who doesn't have black friends might not realize that this black character is a gay black character. They would just be like, oh, he's a black character. Okay, I'm not reading. I'm not hip enough to pick up on the fact that he has some, like, queer mannerisms. And it is weird that I think... There's hints that he might have some feelings for Greg Kinnear's character, possibly, but that's as close as the movie is willing to get. Like, he doesn't even get a real... He, he's, I, he's, not, he's not allowed to have someone have a crush on him, even. I remember at age 12 thinking that he was Simon's boyfriend. You know, that he was his agent, but he was also his partner. Um, but fun fact, at least uh, IMDb uh, trivia, is that James L. Brooks and some of the creative team decided that his character was bisexual, oh. which opens up a whole other can of worms, so... <laughs> Like, and it's not communicated in the movie at all. Yeah, hey, I'm happy for bisexual representation. Right? I just hate that it's Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. I hate bisexual representation when it is completely invisible and there's nothing about his character that reads as even anything other than coded gay, I guess. 
I didn't. Maybe a bi person would read it differently, but that's that's that is a surprise to me. This, by the way, I, I think that's I think that's just straight people making their own decisions without knowing anything about anything, and a bunch of straight actors being like, "Whoop! I played it too fake." This, by the way, is the reverse compliment sandwich I was talking about, where uh, rather than like Mad About You is giving you a gay theme through like a heterosexual theme, this is sneaking a gay theme in, but it's only to balance out something that's like her her heinously bad. Does that make sense? Sure. I feel like that's is key to like why we're discussing this movie and like it's just it like I said it's a, it it treats his, his sexuality as something that happens to people mm-hmm. happens to straight people and it's hap- it's so at like and he doesn't like I said he doesn't clock his gay um he they tell you that he is and then like there's that whole scene where he's like drawing and like he's you know he, yeah what's the, you know, the angel he's being like this perfect angel gay um but not honestly contributing really anything to uh, anybody's art. He's just there to make their lives look better. Mm-hmm. And there's like a quick moment when I feel like the movie knows that. And he's like, because he's like, oh, don't you ever wish that you weren't gay? Like, don't you think your life would be easier? And then Greg Kinnear is like, well, do you think your life is easy, Melvin? And like, for like a quick second, you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then the whole, like, it's, it's this weird understanding, but then everything else around the Greg Kinnear just undermines that line in that moment. Right. Well, they still had to get to the parents' melodrama. Yeah. He had to have his big Oscar speech, you know, the big sweaty wad of money, you know. But, but you know, Brian, what, what can I say? You know, like in 97, we were eating up every crumb that we could get. You know, yeah. like I, w- I was invested in Simon. I liked Simon. You know, like I was worried. I, uh, But I also, what you said, Brian, earlier, um, but it was said earlier, but I think part of this movie's lingering effect on me at age 12 though too was was this general tone of of this is what's going to happen to you if you move to the city and you're not careful enough and you're homosexual right and you know for a kid contemplating coming out to his parents you know learning that he was gay early on and thinking about that you know movies like this maybe help contribute a lot of fear you know a lot of misconceptions that i carried on to even though that like i've repeated several times i still carry a lot of a warm affection for this movie even where i can see that it was harmful i think Melvin is the gayer storyline for me. There is something about his romance <laughs> with Helen Hunt that reads as very gay to me because he loves her from afar. Like he visits her place of business. He builds up this relationship in his head. And I think there's something that this movie does that perpetuated a lot of crushes that I definitely had that definitely were not like they were doomed from the start. And this movie kept encouraging me. It's like, oh, at least you know who you want. Don't you see how powerful that is? How special that is to know <laughs> the person you love, even though it's clear that they don't really love you back yet. But like, there's something about his persistence and hope that just read as very like queer crushing on a straight person. Or if it's like, as a gay man, like loving someone from afar, loving someone that's your friend, whatever, like things and relationships that aren't meant to be. But the really this movie plays it up as romantic when really this is just like he's a creepy dude going to a restaurant mm-hmm. observing this woman <laughs> and he's built up so much in her head and she calls him out on it. But then like he saves the day with the compliments he pays you pays her. But no, she had a point like he doesn't know anything about her. He knows the stuff he overhears her telling other customers or her co-workers, but the amount that he paid attention to her and got actual information like oh her heart is warm because he remembered how to say he, he remembered her son's nickname was spence instead of calling him spencer like 
That's just a classic he's doing manipulation. The, he's doing the, the bare minimum, like, mm. <laughs> of work. Yeah, he pays attention um, to her. Well, I mean, this is where I don't know if it's like magical realism or actually more realistic. Is that like, is it magical realism that like any other character, the second he said something as offensive as half the things that he says in this movie, the relationship is severed forever. Yeah. Like that would be New York. That would be something else. Or is it more realistic because he's actually famous and successful and rich that you're going to have people forgive him over and over again for this access to this too. I mean, that's a, this is a weird kind of uncomfortable thing that this movie sets up that goes. He, the creepiest part of this being that like he, he pays for the medical care for, uh, for Carol's son and he helps Simon out uh, in a way. And it's just kind of like, is he buying these people? So they're beholden to them. I think he is. And that is the sad part about this movie. And the part that makes um, Carol be, if not an unrealistic character, then like a very sad character. It's not the compliments that I think wins her over in the end. It's just the fact that she kind of needs him because she's fucked for caring for her sick child if she doesn't have the support of this like patron. And that might be, at the very least, that's what makes her linger around longer than other people would need to because she's dependent mm -hmm. on him. But that's such a shitty situation where this woman who is like has her own thoughts and dreams um, ends up having to hook herself to this guy who at the end of the movie has shown that it's possible he could become slightly less of an asshole and maybe one day could be somewhat less of an asshole, but um, it's going to be a lot of work and she's going to have to put up with it. And I don't, I don't think that's going to be a great situation for her. That's not, that shouldn't be her responsibility. She's already a mother to a child and she has to be a mother to this fucking asshole who yes, has mental illness and that affects his behavior to a degree, but is also just, a piece of shit. But does the movie tell us her like hopes and dreams? Because I, you know, the other ma male characters—one's a novelist, one's an artist—and then she's a server at a restaurant who takes care of her son. And I mean, yeah, I guess that's her her hope and dream is that her son is well and, and taken care of. Uh, and she gets her speech about just wanting male attention of any kind, mm -hmm. and that she feels bad that she makes her son hug her for longer, which is truly sad but like for, mm -hmm. in terms of characterization like i don't the movie doesn't really give us anything about like who who the father was and how she got in this situation what she wanted to do with her life before she was trapped working this job to take so she'd be able to have a steady paycheck to take care of her kid when i say hopes and dreams the one thing i'm referring to is she dates that hot guy right and that doesn't go, that date does not go well and with she's del hair yes with with del from uh caroline in the city hair and um <laughs> that doesn't go well i when i'm talking about hopes and dreams all we really get is that she's longing for a man i think she wants someone who is probably a better match for her than this old piece of shit is. And that's who she gets stuck with in the end. And I feel bad for her for that, but we don't really, we don't really get a gauge for what she wants out of life aside from that. That's her whole speech is like when she's her whole, like crying, sad Oscar speech is about how like she wants a man for something as simple as holding his hand mm -hmm. and like, and a normal boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't and exist. <laughs> now that's a good laugh line. Yeah. I think that was her we Oscar clip. Yeah, we all do, dear. It doesn't exist. <laughs> she was not. Yeah, it's definitely her Oscar clip. Yeah. Oh, um, the the mom was nominated. Yeah, for uh, best oh. supporting actress, I believe. Wow, oh, good for her. That's a that's a fairly small role to get nominated yeah. for. So good for her. Uh, she, uh, just a clarification: she was not. Oh well, why did she get a Oscar clip? I feel like she was nominated. In my head, she was nominated. No. Well, she was probably in the, her Oscar clip, right. yeah. or like maybe like the best, like best picture sure. like, clip right. where 
or something. Well, she close. deserved a nomination. Yeah, Sh- Shirley Knight. She did get Shirley Knight did get a bunch of smaller critic uh, uh, choice awards. <laughs> Maybe not critics choice awards, but but critics groups. Uh, she got some awards. Good for her. Maybe that's what I was uh, remembering. Uh, I was surely watching those as a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. What I do think this movie does well is that it uses some of like it, it, it's clearly like a broad comedy dramedy rom-com like it's for the masses but i think it uses some of the language of like smaller films like it does its work when it's like with the whole like metaphor of him like quadruple locking his door like it's the movie starts with him like locking that door locking himself in away from the world and ends almost ends with him like forgetting to lock the door he's finally like he steps on the crack and he steps on the crack. very the very last shot so it's also significant everybody (laughs) but that's the thing is like it's it's i think it's encouraging people who may not be looking for those sorts of things in the movies it's giving them a taste of it and i think that's nice i was sort of impressed with where his character goes like i said he doesn't end up a good person by the end. But um, I was worried that this was going to be a movie where either um, the mental illness is played off as a joke and we're supposed to laugh at the person who can't control himself from saying the wrong thing, like Sophia and Golden Girls, or that it was something where he's going to be like, his mental illness makes him a villain necessarily. I think it does a really good job showing how like, yeah, like mental illness affects how you act to a degree. And then the, the other portion of that is who you are and what you can do with like your basic uh, core personality that you can develop and grow in any way you want. And it shows that growth is possible. And that's actually a subtle nuanced message that I was not necessarily expecting from this. I expected that um, like kissing Helen Hunt would solve his mental illness and be happy at the end. And that's not how this ends at all. And mm-hmm. uh, I, um, can appreciate how he's like an Archie Bunker character who's used a lot like Archie Bunker was in all in the family, but he's used a pretty good effect to, um, I don't know, um, make us feel one way about him. And then we watch him evolve a little bit. And that is a nice thing to see. So um, that, that was a surprise to me that like, I would actually be pretty much okay with the way his character works. Yeah. I made this parallel when we're discussing this in terms of mad about you, but like, this is a movie where the only thing that helps a man distract himself from his own problems and, and and the things that keep him a prisoner in his own home is by starting to care about other people's problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's only when he like takes these other messes into his life that he gets out of his own head. And I think that's a perfectly fine message to put into the world that like care about other people. It actually Mm -hmm. like makes your life better. Yeah. And you know, that it, it, it took lots of turns and twists to get there though, too. Like they felt necessary to insert the, you know, going to his apartment in the middle of the night to say, I'm not going to sleep with you. Never, ever, ever. And it's the, well, I'm sorry. We don't open for no sexos until 9 a.m. To be kind of like, okay, they changed their minds or they grew, you know. And this is where I think, you know, James L. Brooks, you know, even though that this is not completely successful, this is not Terms of Endearment or Broadcast News, still has a wonderful commitment to really not having one tone. To, to really slide into comedy, to drama, to romance, as much as, you know, you'd expect normal life to do, where that's not going to fit any of those modes. Um, you know, and a romance and a happy ending never lasts forever. Mm-hmm. So I guess if, you know, I, I, I add a couple points by the end in, in that ending, but when I realized that it's just like, okay, this, this movie's being honest that this is an odd queer pairing and probably won't last. 
but they're going to try to be kind to each other uh, and, and work something out, you know, if you still ignore all the creepiness and everything else that's happened for the last two hours and 20 minutes. I wish it was a little more ambiguous about that as opposed to just directly showing you this happy ending. Yeah, I, um, I think so too. Because there's there's that effort. And it does. It has that very sort of like shaggy sort of, you're right, like sitcom kind of feel where like different scenes have like completely different tones and vibes. Um, like they feel like different episodes of TV shows. Uh, I have a question for you guys. And it is about James L. Brooks. And to what degree we feel that Melvin is a stand-in for himself? I feel like he read that script, saw a lot of himself in it, and and took some stuff and tried to make it kind of his own in his own weird way. Um, yeah. I mean, even if that's not what he intended and sometimes authors don't do that intentionally, they're like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't plan this prolific writer to be a stand in for myself in I'm a, I am myself a prolific writer. Uh, That is what people are going to assume or like guess at least. And I keep thinking about that scene he has with the receptionist where, by the way, I did not realize that was Julie Benz from Mm -hmm. Buffy. I was very surprised Mm -hmm. she was in this movie. Good for her. Um, but he has that line where she asks how she it's like probably the most famous line of the movie where she asks how he writes female characters and he gives a very insulting answer. And I think of a woman. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, I think of a man. Yeah, I think of a man. But then I take away all accountability and reason. No, your first answer is the better answer. That'd be a much better. <laughs> how do you write women? I think about women. And then, uh-huh. yeah. and then the elevator <laughs> closes. Oh, that was apparently an real quote by John. See, I don't think it is. I think that is an urban legend because I tried to find it and it is not documented a single place online that he actually said that. So it might have been an urban legend that was floating around back at the time before we had internet research capabilities and it's something James L. Brooks heard and decided to appropriate for this movie. And that That itself is meaningful. But um, yeah, um, I... If it is like, there's no Snopes page for this, so uh, it, it was not something that was easy <laughs> to debunk. But I really tried to find where, where that quote came from, and maybe it's a paraphrase that I just couldn't pick up on Google. But um, the the fact that he chose uh, the fact that he chose that is very interesting. I think that it's closer to what you think, Drew. Is I I you know I was talking to Brian as as we were preparing for this one that. Um, this is the moment I think that James L. Brooks is just going to pitch himself over the cliff. You know, he didn't make that many movies, but he's involved in a lot of television, a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was never going to have the success again, but he was never going to get his old tricky tones right again. And we see that with Spanglish. We see that uh, especially with Spanglish. Um, and he, I think that he's letting himself out more. Unfortunately, the guy that used to be able to direct and write women extraordinarily well is getting older and I mean, this is a this is not an equal hander between Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson. No. This is very clearly Melvin's movie, mm-hmm. and that's a, and that's a change from a guy you know that that gave us broadcasting, right. that gave us very complicated uh, and knew how to. I think you know he knew how to give his actresses more than it seems to be once he reached this point in '97 and then moving forward. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think easily the highlight of as good as it gets for me is a lot of the dialogue and a lot of that dialogue feels very brooks it feels uh some of that really comes through um like the uh, you know oh it doesn't exist honey line and uh um i wanted to talk about the cast though we i know we've talked a lot about um jack and helen and greg but bears mentioning, speaking of James L. Brooks in The Simpsons, Yeardley Smith in a, in a rare uh, live action appearance. Mm-hmm. 
didn't really know what her 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 job for him was though. <laughs> like, is she an just assistant? to show up? Is she an assistant? Probably. She's dressed. He doesn't make that much money to be an assistant. Yeah, she's dressed very. I feel like she was another sort of agent that was different from what Cuba right. Gooding Jr. was because she was dressed very nicely. Um, but yeah, it was unclear, and also she vanishes after. We didn't talk about the yeah. scene. We didn't talk about the scene where he sees how fucked up his face gets, and the Frankenstein um, Joker moment. Okay, so. Number one, um, this movie did come back into my head. I um, injured my face a few years ago, and I remember while they were putting stitches on my face, I was thinking about this part of As Good As It Gets. I'm like, I hope it's not like that. And it wasn't, which is good. But um, it was really weird to watch the scene because the scene plays off vaguely like comedy where Yardley goes in and tries to present like a brave face for this like business associate slash friend who's going through a very, very hard thing. But when she sees his face, she immediately cannot hide how awful it is and starts sobbing. And then Cuba Gooding Jr. comes in and has the exact same reaction. Like, like it is so bad they can't contain themselves. And it's kind of humor, but it is weirdly humor that comes off at the expense of the man who was viciously attacked, sort of. It's just mm -hmm. a really fucked up thing that I felt weird about watching. It's a very weird tone uh, mm. revisiting at this time. I always, I like, even as a kid, I knew that this was like halfway between comedy and like horror movie, but like they play it both ways. Mm. And even though that they've got these kind of comic moments, there's something that's really unsettling about hearing Lisa Simpson weep and gasp yeah. at this really horrific makeup, like a very like disturbing makeup job. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's real bad. Although I was just listening to her true crime podcast this morning when I was walking my dog. So I hear her talking about awful stuff all the time now. It seems less weird. <laughs> is it good? Um, it is sort of good. It, I mean, you could say it's sort of copaganda because she's talking to cops and having them tell their stories, but it's like small town investigations and they are pretty interesting. So great. Sad for yourself. Um, but yeah, Yardley Smith is one of the people I forgot was in this movie and that was a very surprise cast inclusion. Of, uh, among many others. Well, there were so many directors. Uh, Brian, I'm sure that you like kept track of some of them, but I mean, we've got Harold Ramis, we've got Lawrence Kasdan. Like, how many more did I miss? Shane Black. Shane Black Shane was a Black. crazy one. Um, my surprise cast inclusion was that this is Maya Rudolph's first speaking role yes. ever on screen, and that is also my Paul Thomas Anderson connection for you. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, she looks like a baby. So I, young. Like she was on SNL not that much longer after this, but like she looks like an absolute child. And it was weird to see her look so <laughs> Yeah. So can we blame this movie for the fact that Pay It Forward existed? Yes. You can you can blame this movie for the rest of Helen Hunt's career, which is uh... what what about what about we need to talk about what women want. <laughs> Sorry, Mel Gibson. And Ashley Johnson. Um, Ashley Johnson and Helen Hunt should play mother and daughter in something. I would believe that. I think they'd be good on screen together. Well, maybe the What Women Want sequel. They made a What Women Want sequel called What Men Want. Oh, well, yeah. we know what Was it a want. sequel or was it like a reboot slash make? Uh, I I can look it up, but I think, I feel like I looked it up. I think it's the same universe. Yeah, yeah. I believe it is like, the same universe. Everyone oh. wants their own MCU at this point. Mm, so exactly. we're going to have what cats want, what dogs want, what babies want. It'll, it will get there eventually. I mean, if we go pitch what dogs want in... Uh, We'd have to call it uh, Who's Wanting Now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they made that too. I forgot the dog one was yep. my favorite at the end of that series. <laughs> with Bette Danny Midler. DeVito and Diane Keaton. Oh, it was Diane Keaton? Midler. Oh, it no, it was Diane Keaton, yeah. Oh, why do I think it was Bette Midler? Oh, because she played a poodle in Oliver and Company. There you go. <laughs> what movie are we talking about? <laughs> As good as it gets. One, yeah. one memory I have from this film, and 
a problematic memory for a problematic film is how often my dad kept saying that Helen Hunt got a a, a breast augmentation for this film, specifically because oh because of, of the wet t shirt scene. I I can't I, I I told me about this ahead of time and I realized that like I could try to look and I have no way of telling because that's not something I I can spot so I have no idea if that's true or not. For your dad to like have thought she was so ugly, he seems to have spent a lot of time looking at her breasts. Your dad's obsessed with her. Yeah, that's the takeaway. <laughs> My dad is obsessed with Helen Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm my, glad, you know, I'm glad somebody is. My my, what is it about our parents hating on Helen Hunt for this? Because I have a very strong memory. My mother having a visceral dislike of her performance in this movie, and she picked up on like very specific things. Where, but she like hated her winning an Oscar. You know, she stopped watching Mad About You. <laughs> but there was something where she just like looked at Helen Hunt and was like, "I don't like you anymore." But she blamed it off of her having an inconsistent accent. I was gonna say, and I, tried, I was literally about to ask, does she try? Is she trying to have an accent in this yes. movie? And and so I watched it, and it's not as glaring to me, but maybe just because I've watched it so many times on VHS as a kid. But like, she starts off with a honk in New York accent, gives up on it. I mean, like, but a couple scenes, she 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 will still go back to it. Yeah, like it's like it's like Carrie Fisher doing the British accent in the first Star Wars, where it's just kind of like, what, what, what are you going for? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, I noticed that first scene. I'm like, I don't remember her doing an accent. And then I didn't have that thought again. So you're probably right. I feel like that would, it probably just depends on when they were shooting it. Like she probably just switched halfway through production. Because that's why it's like at the beginning and yeah. then kind of at the end. Because they're all kind of like. You, you think you have a person working on set to be like, hey, remember, <laughs> you should do that line again <laughs> with the accent you had in the previous scene. Yeah, she would have a dialect coach. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. But- James L. James L. Brooks didn't spring for that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Broadcast News is one of my is probably one of my favorite movies of the '80s for sure. I love that movie a lot. I have not seen it. Um, it is the last like physical rental I ever got from Netflix, and it's still in my cabinet, so I could watch it. Yeah, we could watch it right now. We could watch it literally right after this. Um, and so did they discharge you, or did this what? Uh, I think I stopped oh. getting the mail discs and they stopped charging me for them and I just have them. So they're waiting for me to mail them back one day, but I don't oh. know if they even still do that. So I they think... do. My movie is available on DVD through Netflix. Well, that's surprising. You, you still could, but you don't have to because no. I still have eight over in my collection because it was the thing that you did with Netflix when it was still around, which is the, you know, the 10th or 11th movie. Oh, it never arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could get away with it. You just didn't have to do with it too much. <laughs> so that's why I have some like extra mystery science theater 3000 episodes and diva and kaboom for some reason. <laughs> I guess I, I, I really wanted those and I didn't want to pay for them. I remember having a, a DVD that I had scratched and just getting it from Netflix and sending back the scratched one. <laughs> <laughs> you all are admitting to a lot of crimes. On recording, I didn't commit. Okay. I didn't commit. Oh, a crime. I would. I, I would be happy if somebody from Netflix was listening to this podcast. Honestly, <laughs> even uh, if it was just to sue us. I also like that um, because I grew up watching The Simpsons. Most James L. Brooks movies I know as um, various porn parodies that uh, uh, show up on like marquees of porn <laughs> theaters. So broadcast news is broadcast nudes. Um, Turns of endearment is sperms of endearment, and I'll do anything is I'll do anyone. <laughs> 
<laughs> I had completely forgotten. I'll I'll do anything. I had mixed it up with what was the Woody Allen musical movie? Everyone says I love you. There, I always mix up those two for like some explicable reason. I've never seen it. Um, there was a season of uh, you must remember this that talked about that uh, production. Give a whole episode basically to that period of time. Oh, I love, I do love this. I just was scrolling through the trivia. Woody Harrelson read for the part of Simon, according to Harrelson, he went to Femi. Oh my God. I think Greg Kinnear will probably play a better gay man than Woody Harrelson would, but I've never seen Woody Harrelson play gay, so I don't really know. Um, but apparently he went to Femme on it because like we talked about, like Greg Kinnear doesn't go Femme at all. No. He, so, a little, he, he puts it on in some instances. Like it's the early scenes. It's like yeah. 5% there yeah. and then 0%. Um, my the thing I want to point out is that uh, the gang of punks that beat Greg Kinnear up are Skeet Ulrich, Jamie Kennedy, and then someone who is not Matthew Lillard. And it just seems like it should be Matthew Lillard. And I don't know why they didn't give Matthew Lillard that role, but I feel like he must feel left out. It should have been the whole cast of screen. Yes. It is a complete missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You get 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 Nev Campbell in there, get Henry Winkler, like really, just get the whole cast. <laughs> no one would see that coming. It would be great. Mm-hmm. I would watch that. That would that would improve this movie in my in my estimation. <laughs> well, Brian, I might be getting ahead of myself for say something gay about it, but I do think we could take a moment to talk about Skeet Ulrich and his beauty uh, in this one. That did make a good impact. I know that Scream the year before, like our favorite murder boyfriends between between you know Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich, but for some reason he like really stuck with me with this. I guess it's just you like, see his butt. The, yeah, you see his butt. It's the very queer, like, you know, like, oh, you're so gorgeous. I must paint you. Mm-hmm. Is that like, it worked for me, you know? <laughs> I've never found Skeet Ulrich attractive, even though he was like empirically attractive because he's so scary and scream that murder is the vibe I get from him more than anything. So it prevents me from actually finding him as attractive as I might otherwise. But he is a very beautiful man. Well, you're not as damaged as other homosexuals <laughs> because I think oh, that's part of the thrill. Well... <laughs> 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 or, or given that my favorite show is Hannibal and that I have many favorite things that oh, are about murder yeah. boyfriends. Hannibal's, uh, I, think, I, I get Hannibal entirely. Yeah. I guess Skeet Orch is just a different different thing for me. Also, it does not help for me that he is dressed like Johnny Depp during his worst period. Like uh, he's dressed in this movie <laughs> like Johnny Depp would be dressed in like 10 years. Right. I was like, that's, that's, not, that's not my favorite look on a guy, but whatever. I'm curious about the, like, the shooting schedule with those movies because I feel like he was obviously he obviously made as good as it gets before Scream came out because I feel like if that had come out I, I, I don't know he would have I don't think he would have taken such a small part at that point I, I guess Matthew Maybe. I guess Matthew Lillard was doing Wing Commander by this time oh my god <laughs> or how uh, what is it the 13, 13 ghosts. So, oh, yeah, we're getting to the 2000s now. <laughs> yeah. No, I think this happened a year. So a Scream came out in December 96. This came out in December 97. So it was a full year. So he, this was post-Scream for him, I would imagine. This was him getting yeah. slightly artsy. You yeah. can do teen mm-hmm. thriller and also prestige Oscar movie. Oh, but wasn't the problem, I think it was, was it Chill Factor that put him and Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh together like soon after this and then that like derailed both of their careers? So it was just like, you were doing good and then you chose hokey action and it completely like got got away from you. I mean, Snow Dogs and that like gay cruise movie. I do want to talk about the gay cruise movie. I really Five do. Dog Now. <laughs> no, but I could see yep. it being like he shot Scream and then he went and shot as good as it gets, but they hang on to as good as it gets for like award season. 
coming off a scream, he'd be like, I want to do something softer too. I want people, I want to show my range. I could play a cowboy. I can play a murder boyfriend <laughs> and a cowboy. That's range. <laughs> I could do a murder cowboy too. Yeah, as we established, he's not the one that he's not the one that beats that beats Greg Kinnear. That is Jamie Kennedy. He's no, the least... Jamie Kennedy also like he gets some kicks in, but the one who does the coat rack to the face is someone is that third one. I don't know. Not Matthew Lillard. That, right. That's why he's not famous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it had been Matthew Lillard, he would have done it. I do want to say regarding Jack Nicholson, um, I just my favorite performance of his is still about Schmidt. Um, I think he's absolutely fantastic in that movie, which is not the movie we're talking about. But so, so you want people to watch it? I feel. Yes. I feel like about Schmidt also may not exist if it wasn't for this movie because he's playing like a. Something along similar lines, but like further down a specific path in some ways. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, you could. Mm-hmm. The, the, these two characters have something in common that maybe Alexander Payne saw this and was like, "I want to write a Probably. movie about a miserable old man as well." I, but I just feel like it's a very yes, they're very similar, but Jack Nicholson plays them very differently. Yeah, and I like that's what I like about his performance and about Schmidt is that he like just sheds all of that mm-hmm. Nicholson stuff. Well. Not to go back too far to the beginning of our conversation again, boys, but something interesting that you had mentioned of did this kick off, you know, a series of movies of lovable assholes. And indeed it did. But it also seemed to presage and coming right ahead of, you know, the major assholes on television, you know, like right before Sopranos hit, right before the other antiheroes hit. And it does seem like a lot of a lot of that causticness and willingness to take chances on these type of caustic characters soon transferred to television. And this is why I think that this movie is often the prime example of like, you can't make this today, uh, but specifically in a movie environment where people aren't going to spend that money to watch someone be so awful for, for two hours at a time when, when they're in the comfort of their own home and don't have anybody looking at them to actually see the enjoyments that they're maybe getting from a lot of this bad behavior. There's maybe a little feeling of safety, mm-hmm. but I will tell you, I mean, like I, I, I saw this and like the, the terrible things that he says, especially his anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. like worked as punchlines for people in the theater. You know, like the success of this movie, and I think a lot of its lasting legacy is both interesting, but, you know, it's also kind of troubling. Mm-hmm. You know, like we would talk about this in this day and age and be kind of like, oh, this guy would obviously support Trump. You know, like, yes, a lot of this is mental illness, but we're like, we would be focusing much more on all of his bigotry. I mean, supporting Trump is also mental illness. But like, I do think we're probably like two years away from some conservative movie studio trying to like remake a movie like this uh, for like a million dollars. And they'll say it does really well. And it's John Voight. (laughs) Yeah. Did you see that uh, Gina Carano just got cast in a movie about uh, Hunter Biden? Oh, great. Great. No one wants- Oh, no. Even Republicans- But that's good. Even Republicans don't want to see that. They're like, I mean, they're like happy it happened. They're like, they don't want to watch that. Why would they want to watch that? Whatever. Um, yeah. Aside from Alexander Payne's movies, what are examples of movies that follow this one that were about assholes? I'm trying to think, and my brain's not coming up with any. I don't know. I mean, all of all of Alexander Payne's movies yeah. are this. Ben Stiller movies. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think we we would get into like the gross out comedies and the cringe comedies. Like I think, you know, something about Mary soon after this mm-hmm. uh, or next year. Um, I think, you know, Wes Anderson would actually do, I think a lot, uh, actually took a lot 
maybe not influenced by James L. Brooks or as good as it gets, but when you get into Rushmore, when you get into Life Aquatic, uh, you get into Royal Tenenbaums, uh, I think is the best way of being able to build a movie around an unrepentant asshole and humanize them at the same time. Just cast Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or Gene Hackman. Yeah. So what you still oh, yeah. need is a beloved movie star and mm. people will allow you to still be an asshole. I would say the long line comes to not just television and everything else, but but Alex Ross Perry is probably a good example of somebody who can do this type of caustic, but also um, interesting and, you know, less schmaltzy version of this in, in modern times. I get, that's an interesting question. Like, what is the best female version of this? Citizen Ruth. Oh, maybe like Gina Rollins, you know, like if we want to like go back further. But I think Elizabeth Moss fits it fits a lot of that good mode for like our best female asshole <laughs> working in movies today. Yeah, when we had all young adult. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Yeah, she's a total uh, asshole. She's a great asshole. Yeah. yeah. Who also doesn't really ever get it in the end and is just going to be fucked up for the rest of her life. But yeah. Rachel getting married. Mm-hmm. Uh. I suppose no, 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 Noah Baumbach is probably another good example. But for telling you the truth, I actually don't react well to a lot of his movies. <laughs> um, I'm trying. Well, I feel very like that sort of like nerdy New York energy mm-hmm. that, it, that, like, that this that as good as it gets tries for, and that Men About You even tries for a little bit. Uh, I think Noah Baumbach. Uh, is good at that. What was that? Is that a cat? Is that a kitty? Yeah, it's Daphne. Hi. Name for F- Fraser's Daphne? I guess Niall's Daphne. <laughs> <laughs> it was technically Daphne de Maurier, but uh, uh, yeah, I named it for Daphne from Fraser. <laughs> I want to go back to earlier. I feel like it was on uh, the other podcast, but um, Max, you implied that. Kelsey Grammer was sexy, and I remember being like, "What?" That, I also well, picked up on that and was disturbed. I mean, I was <laughs> like in in our discussion about Ban about you, and I hope everyone does. You know, has listened to that first, so some of our pieces fit together. Um, but like, I just feel like most of the sitcoms out of the '90s and some of these lead actors weren't necessarily sexy people. Obviously, people had many opinions about Helen Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of us young gay men may fall in love with her through the movies and, and TV that we discuss. But like, I always fall in love with sharp featured women like Jodie Foster and everybody else, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I am a gay man, too. <laughs> but that's my roundabout way of saying that, you know, I, I kind of miss when they gave us more regular looking people now than like turning on CW or whatever, like Netflix or something, you know, is, is pumping out at this time um, with perfectly right. chiseled 20 year old God. Even, car- know, even I, cartoons I, have to have beautiful voice actors now. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Or you're going to put like Jared Leto, you know, in, in character actor makeup for every goddamn movie at this point. It's just like, let's unconventionally attractive, you know, heavy and, you know, bald people play themselves for God damn it. Burned fat suits. Fat suits should not exist. I agree. What about in the, what about in the case of a, uh, a, a flashback or a dream sequence? Do a Christian bail and, and gain that weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to really commit. Yeah. yeah. Just wanted to just, just for clarification mm-hmm. purposes. <laughs> well, I guess that's as good a segue as any into our Say Something Gay segment. Um, if you're new to the show, uh, every week, um, or every episode, I should say, um, we like to spend an 
episode talking intellectually about about films and cinema and the idea is that at the end we say something gay about it something stereotypically ridiculously gay like this person taught or boy I, that was a great outfit or whatever it is so with that in mind uh who wants to start with our say something gay uh greg kinnear's chest hair <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh all of Greg Kinnear's clothes in this movie suck, and I don't know if that's emblematic of them not knowing how not knowing how to dress him, or if that gay man in 1987 just dressed like garbage. But like everything he's wearing is like, except for showing off his chest hair is very unflattering, and his t-shirts are like big and like formless. And at the very least, we've made advancements in the form of like t-shirts fitting um, gay men's bodies in flattering ways, and that is not something that was happening in 1997. I think Cuba Gooding Jr. is pretty well dressed in the movie. He is, and that's made, it's like um, uh, Helen Hunt shining on Mad About You. It makes um, Greg Kinnear look all the worse because he's dressed like these like formless clothes that just are not flattering on him. Well, yeah. in the second half of the movie, he's recovering from a heinous injury. Even as a cast. Even before that. <laughs> even before that. Fair. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're recovering from an injury, that the you can wear a Becky t-shirt and pajama pants. I'm sure there are gay men who would not do that, but you are correct. I'm wearing pajama pants right now, but whatever. I'm wearing shorts. Anyway, Max, did you uh, did you have a season to get? I think I already made my love of uh, the the beauty of Skeet Ulrich known. Um, so I'm going to have to swerve and say that I tried really hard to pick out Maya Rudolph this time, and I think I saw her. So uh, that will be my additional say something, Kate, about it. <laughs> Oh, and that Missy Pyle shows up as one of the waitresses, so too. So that 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 was delightful. I'm always happy to see her, and also God bless her. Wait, for... was that Elephant Girl? No, that was the taller brunette waitress. I'm I'm always happy yeah. that Missy Pyle exists because she, clearly she's had to work extra hard to have that name and still become a famous actress, and she has succeeded. And I'm sure there's agents who be like, you have to change that name, and she was like. No, I don't care that my name sounds like Messy Pile. I'm going to keep it, <laughs> and I'm going to be in movies anyway. And God damn it, she was, and I salute her. My name is Steamy Lumps. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that she's had a successful career. It's not like she's been underused or anything else. You know, she's been an Oscar Best Picture winners like the artist. Mm -hmm. But I still think that there's way too many gay men that are sleeping on Missy Pyle. Uh, and she needs to be an icon on the level of Jennifer Coolidge. And she is one of our best comedians out there uh, that should get um, should get some more notice so my i guess that is my final say something gay about it brian is homosexuals please seek out missy pile movies beyond just galaxy quest <laughs> justice for missy pile got it um <laughs> my say something gay was i was either going to be skeet Ulrich or Craig Kinnear. now i'm at a loss i don't know um i really like the house dress that Jack Nicholson makes fun of at the end of the movie that Helen Hunt is wearing the red polka dots. I think it's real cute. I think she looks cute in it. Yeah, it wasn't dowdy at all. That was like an extra mean thing. He just doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about, stupid asshole. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was. <laughs> I, thought no, it was I agreed. Really... I agreed with him. I thought it was a little mousy. Well, good. You're on team asshole. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it does seem like something that you and I might say, Brian, or be kind of like, I can't believe I had to get my own jacket when you're just wearing that. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear. Actually, I can hear that. I mean, <laughs> also, uh, Kenny, Kenny from Kenny from Frasier, shout out. He was the restaurant guy who made Jack Nicholson. That's where I know him oh. from. I could not place him, but he did look familiar. Our yeah. final crossover yeah. of yeah. sitcoms tonight. Wait, who was he? 
He was the station manager on Frasier. He was the uh, the host at the restaurant that made Jack Nicholson put on a jacket. Oh. And one of the only other straight men on the cast of Frasier. <laughs> yeah, actually. The uh, busboy who gives uh, him, very unethically, by the way, uh, Helen Hunt's address uh, was later, is now in the Ant-Man movies. Oh, oh good for him. He's in stuff. Yeah, he's... Yeah, uh, he should not that would sold, be like a sh- should not have sold out his coworker like that. That's that's very unfair. no. That's very yeah 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 no. And I wondered and I, and I don't want to go back into it, but I did it just I just remembered that uh, while we were talking about Jack Nicholson, I wanted to point out that in twenty years in the restaurant industry, I've worked at places that had a Melvin, and it's a fucking nightmare for everybody involved. Um, <laughs> and with that, thank you so much. <laughs> Which means tip yeah. your servers. I was gonna say please. tip your servers. Yes, yes. Um, with that, do not, <laughs> do not oh, try ahead. to stalk. Do not try to stalk and fuck your servers, yeah. please. Do not date anyone in service industry. Um, well, thank you so much, you guys, for coming on. I've uh, been looking for a reason to get to as good as it gets, um, and this conversation couldn't have gone better. So, thank you so much. Tell us where to find you on the internet. Uh, if you'd like to send me your sketches of Helen Hunt nude, you can do so on Twitter at I Write Wrongs, I W R I T E Wrongs. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Drew G Mackey, M A C K I E, and Gayest Episode Ever is on Twitter at Gayest Episode, just like it's spelled. Um, and then if you want to listen to our show, we're at GayestEpisodeEver.com, or just look for it where you would normally find a podcast. We're probably going to be there. And if we're not there, tell us, and we'll put ourselves there. Excellent. Thanks again. Um, seriously, go check out their podcast. It's one of my favorites. Uh, Max, where can we find you? And I'm at Max Bever on Instagram. Excellent. And I am so Brian Rowe on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Please give me a follow over there. Um, and you can find the podcast at Piece of Pie Pod at Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you once again, everybody, for coming on and talking about this very seminal 1997 movie that I literally saw in the theaters and I've have had a love-hate relationship with ever since. Uh, go check out Gayest Episode Ever and we'll see you soon. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>